1: Hey, folks, thanks for tuning into this special segment of the show featuring one of my heroes, Rick Riley. As you guys know, Rick is just one of the great sports writers of our time. He's also a fantastic author and a screenwriter and a speaker. So many great things from Rick. If you read his books, you're going to laugh out loud and you're going to really have a great time. He's written well over a dozen of them, and I can't tell you how great each and every one of them are. I had the privilege of spending some time with Rick this week, so I hope you'll sit back. Relax and enjoy this special segment of the show. Okay, now next on the tee with me is one of the great sports writers, authors, journalists, screenwriters, and speakers of our time, and that's Rick Riley. Rick is also a New York Times best-selling author. He wrote for Sports Illustrated and ESPN. He was voted the National Sports Writer of the Year 11 times. He's also been recognized with the Damon Runyon Award for Outstanding Contributions to Journalism. USA Today called him the closest thing sports writing ever had to a rock star. In 2014, he was elected to the National Sports Media Association Hall of Fame. He's written well over a dozen great books, and I'm excited to have him with me tonight here on Next on the
2: T. Hey, Rick, thanks for coming on the show. You know, uh, Frank DeFord used to win that same uh, Best Sports Writer in the Country award, and he called it World's Tallest Midget <laughs> <laughs> because no one takes. No one takes sports writing seriously, so it's like, "Ah, okay, you're the best. It's like being the thinnest girl at Jenny Craig, you know?
1: (laughs) Wow. It should mean a lot to you because it certainly means a lot to the rest of us as we look, and there's certainly no one more deserving than you.
2: No, it does. It does. I love it.
1: Rick, I got to start off by getting your thoughts about this past weekend's U.S. Open. What would you think about what you saw?
2: Well, you know, I live in L.A., and L.A. Country Club is the place where we say where the fun never starts because <laughs> they never have any fun over there. They have way too many rules. Uh, when you go there, there's like all these rules. You've got to wear this. You can't wear shorts. You can't put on your shoes in the locker room. After six, got to be wearing a sport coat, this, blah, blah, blah. And that's how it felt when you were there. I mean, you were miles from the players. I mean, if it looked empty, it's because we, we, the, the fans couldn't get anywhere near it. and then. At the very end, they decide to be the first Open in history to take down the ropes and let people surround the green, which freaked out Wyndham Clark because he didn't know it was going to happen. And to his credit, though, he two-putted it. So, you know, I love the course. I think it's my favorite course in all of L.A., but um, it was not a good fan experience.
1: Do you think the USA, uh, USGA returns back there at some point? Do you think they get another crack
2: at it? Yeah, I think because the the course is so good, I think they'll take another crack at it. But I'll tell you one thing they should fix though, Chris. How can you hit a double slice banana ball that would have been out on any Muni in the country, and it's still in the fairway? The Wyndham Clark hit on 18. I mean, that was a terrible drive that would have been in the houses on Pebble Beach at 18, and it would have been in the lake in a many, a lot of places, Bay Hill for one. And instead of him being out of bounds or completely in the cabbage, he says, oh, I'll just hit a 7-iron from the fairway. I mean, that, that fairway was bigger than an LAX runway. And I just think <laughs> that's not how you end the U.S. Open. I mean, a blind nun could hit that, that fairway.
1: <laughs> well, I think we all sort of semi-panicked when he hit the shot, and you could see it on Shot Tracer, and it looked like it was going to your point. Way out of right. bounds, and then when we saw it hit in the fairway, I think we all sort of looked at each other and like, really? That's still in the fairway? But, you know, hey, you can only play the shots you're given. It's not his fault, but I think that's what I'm saying. I think, you know, you look at the 62s on Thursday. We had uh, Tommy Fleetwood shoot 63 on Sunday. I think there may be some do-overs that they like, and, and maybe the width of the fairways is one of them.
2: Yeah. You know, in my, in my book, I met the guy that invented Shot Tracer, And he was a Swedish guy, and he was just trying to improve his game. So, and he's a computer nerd. So he had his wife went to the backyard, had his wife tape him hitting a wedge shot into the pasture behind his house. And then she and and then she gave him back his phone. And then somehow he uh, transferred it to his computer. Said if there was only some way, I could I could follow the trace, the path of the ball to see how it's flying. And that's the only reason he came up with it. And that became Shot Tracer, and he made $2 billion.
1: (laughs) Heck of a story.
2: Heck of a story.
1: Rick, switching gears a little bit, almost a year ago to the day you were on the Rich Eisen Show, and during that talk you said you'd always been a Phil guy, not a Tiger guy. Talk about why.
2: Well, Phil was always my favorite player on tour because he would, you know, (laughs) As I say, Ty, uh, Phil would let you into his life. I mean, he'd tell you all, uh, you know, all all his problems he was having, and you know, we knew when Amy was pregnant, and when his and when when she had breast cancer, when his mom had cancer, and we knew uh, what he was going through. And also, he's the best tipper I've ever seen. I mean, he he the, when he won the Masters, the 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 downstairs clubhouse guys literally cried because. They weren't gonna get his five thousand dollar tip. He was moving up to the champions room. I've seen him get stop his car, get out his on a rainy night, get out his umbrella, give it to a bum, and give him a thousand dollars and hundred, just because he feels bad for the guy. So I know people don't like him, but I liked him. But then when he decided to get in bed with bloodthirsty monarchs from Saudi Arabia, who'd behead protesters. And make gay people disappear and kill journalists, and then to say he's doing it to teach the PGA Tour a lesson, which made no sense to anybody. That that I, he really lost me there because Phil always thinks he's ten percent smarter than anybody who's ever lived, and I think he thought he was going to really you know put one over. As it turns out, he did. He gets two hundred million dollars and has and he's going to suffer no consequences. But I, I just hated that move. And if I had been a sponsor like they all did, I'd have banned him. By the way, he probably would have had Nick Faldo's job. He probably would have had that CBS job, which paid like fourteen million. So I I, I think it was a dumb move for his for his legacy, for his for his business sense. But good for him. He made two hundred million, I guess.
1: Well, take that a half a step further. Does any of that emotion change? Now, or does it shift a little bit because the PGA Tour essentially just did the same thing that Bill did?
2: I hate it all. I hate it all. I hope they all die in a fiery boat accident. I I can't believe that that you're just going to hand the Saudis all the credibility that all these guys, Nicholas and and Arnie, built up over 50, 60, 70 years, and you're just going to let these guys suddenly have your sponsors? And get you a TV, get them a TV deal, and make it seem like this is legitimate golf when it's a goddamn shotgun, three-day baloney tournament. I mean, do they get to buy mulligans? I don't know what's <laughs> going on over there. And so I just think it's, I I just hate all of it. And I know uh, money always wins. As soon as this happened, my rich buddy said, "Yeah, money's always gonna, money will win." And and the Tour will have to uh, merge with them because they can throw so much money at them that the Tour's got no chance. They'd lose every player eventually. So I guess they had to, and nobody wanted to go to court, I guess. And maybe we'll find out the deal was a complete, you know, Fort Knox for the Tour. But I still, I'm not ready to see guys from Saudi Arabia hanging around the 18th green. uh, uh you know, for, at the Masters, I'm not ready to let them have our game. Do you know how many golf courses there are in Saudi Arabia, by the way? Grass golf course. I looked it up nine. There's nine grass golf courses in Saudi Arabia. They're not doing it to bring golf to their country. They're doing it so you think they're nice guys, and we all forget they helped fund 9 11.
1: You mentioned legacy. Let's take that a step further. What does this do for Jay Monahan's legacy, his future? an ability to get the trust back of not only the PGA tour players, but you mentioned the sponsors. How does he, how does he survive this?
2: Well, I don't know. That's the thing, Chris, we got to see the deal because I'm here and there's a lot more to the deal than we know. And that the, and I, I mean, I've heard every kind of thing about it. Um, uh, All these tours are going to remain separate, but it was all just to get endorsements and a TV deal. So, in that, if that's the situation, then he really didn't sell us out. But I can't believe the Saudis would be happy with that. What I think, uh, what Phil and and DJ and those guys wanted, was to be able to bounce back and forth between tours. You'd still have to, I mean, if the if the sheiks want you in Oman, you better goddamn show up in Oman and ride the camel for the picture and all that stuff. But once you've once you've covered your allotment for the live tour then they want to be able to come over here and play play in tournaments that they like like san diego so we'll see but um you know i mean people really like monaghan but this this deal right now looks like what the hell were you thinking
1: do you think he's ceo come beginning at 24
2: well he's not the boss we know the boss is the other guy ali or whatever his name is yeah and he's gonna he's gonna run his tour just like the is gonna run theirs, but the overall boss they sold it out to the sheiks. And you know, good for you, I guess you get a new jet with leather. I hope the bloody check you get from the sheiks doesn't stain your white seats, you know.
1: Jack Nicholas is my golf hero. I know you've spent a lot of time with Jack over the years. One of my favorite things that you've said regarding Jack is when you visited his house and went into his office and saw all the trophies, you asked him. Your house is on fire, and you can only leave with one trophy. Which one is it? And he pointed to Barbara. I think that's all you need <laughs> to know about who Jack Nicholas is. Talk you about know, your relationship with him.
2: That, 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 that sounds like it's made up, but it's totally true. They're always together. They're always giggling. She's kind of the Jack Wrangler, you know. She, she, she greets you at the door. She gets you a cup of coffee okay, he's got Golf Channel right now, Then he's got some stuff for the Nicholas uh, Design Center, then you, and, but he's really looking forward to, you know, because he always asks interesting questions, and do you want to hang around in this room? And then, I always play piano. I like to play piano, and Jack always comes in and, and uh, sings and he's got a real nice voice. He's got kind of, well, you know he's kind of got a high voice, right? All right? So he can sing kind of this tenor thing, and, uh, He's having a little trouble remembering lyrics. Now, he couldn't remember Let It Be. But <laughs> the other thing about Jack is he's shrinking. He sees me the last time. He goes, are you growing? I'm like, yeah, Jack. I grew six inches at 65. He's shrinking. But, um, you know, I don't know if I told you this story or anybody the story. But I said, you know, he had all he had white fang there and he had all the great putters. But he didn't have the giant putter he used win the 86 masters remember that ugly mcgregor thing for sure i got a replica of it you do i do it was called the response i think right yep. and uh they sold like a million putters that week because it looked like a hoover vacuum attachment <laughs> it was just giant and and but but everything was going in off the center of it and so i said where is it he goes i don't know where it is I'm like what do you mean he goes well, you know, because he's got these two great grass tennis courts by his, at his house. And so, literally, uh, Ivan Lendl and Federer and, P- and people that are in in America, uh, Sampras used to do, come play at his house. Well, he said, I remember two tennis players were here, and they said, could we borrow this? We want to go play nine holes at, uh, you know, the bear course there. And so, he, he borrows it, and then he never got it back. So, I started researching. And I think it was this player named Stockton took it and took it home. I'm trying to remember this guy's name. Lives in L.A. He died and so uh, contacted his widow and she found it. Wow. She found it and uh, she's sending it to the Nicholas Museum. So wow. I was hope I was hoping I could borrow it, but she said no. <laughs> but I think he's just the greatest guy. Like, he just, no matter when he was playing, when he wasn't, you could ask him anything, and he never dodged a question. He always answered the question. Tiger, you're lucky to get him to answer one question straight. Now he's been better. And you ask me why am I a Tiger guy now instead of Phil? Because Tiger stood up for the PGA tour. He stood up for the tour that made him famous, that that has a legacy that we all love, that's born in America and raised in America, and he turned down God knows what, they say six hundred million dollars. And he did it because he loves the game. And he always tells young guys, you've got to play on the American tour. You've got to fight to make the cut or, or else you've got, to, you've got to pay for all your expenses yourself. And that really teaches you to grind. There's no grinding in a 54-hole love fest where there's no cuts and everybody's wearing shorts and, you know, spooning afterwards. I don't know what the <laughs> hell they're doing, but it ain't golf.
1: So in your latest book, so help me golf. You give a simple reason to the debate that drives Twitter golf insane, which is why Jack Nicholas is better than Tiger Woods. So please share. Why is that?
2: All right. Well, he's got more majors by three. He's got 19 second places in majors, which I think is like 10 more than Tiger. He's got something like 11 thirds, which is more than Tiger. He played against a better field of competition. I mean, Imagine who Jack had to beat every week. Lee Trevino, one of the greatest players ever. Tom Watson. Tom Weisskopf, who was just a fucking killer back in the day. Um, He had to beat Arnold for a long time. He had to beat Snead for a while. Um, You know, Billy Casper won a bunch of majors. He had to beat great players. Now tell me who Tiger beat. He beat Phil, and he beat Duvall, and sometimes he had to beat El. So that that doesn't stack up everybody who knows golf knows Jack played against tougher players. and you could say, "Well, is it was a more of an international game? Well, like who like who later, Faldo came along. I mean, I mean, earlier Faldo came along, but by the time Tiger got really good, Faldo wasn't much of a problem, so that's why I, I say he's better. Just look at the numbers now could- who had the greatest skill set of all time? who just made it look like witchery, who could get it up and down from, you know, the cross Bronx Parkway, Tiger. And he has the greatest skill set I've ever seen. But nobody made more clutch putts and came through at the end than Jack. And it's this blockbuster way of thinking about the world. You know, blockbuster movies, you'd go in there and there was no movies before 1980. And you're like, can I see It's a Wonderful Life? Never heard of it. Oh, could I watch <laughs> Casablanca? Never heard of it. And that's how these young Twitter golf fans are. They don't know anything but Tiger. Do some research and watch Jack Nicklaus play, and you'll see that he was the greatest of all time.
1: I couldn't agree with that statement more. I've had many a Twitter war with guys talking about that. And I'll tell you what, a lot of them, some of your contemporaries, uh, writers at Sports Illustrated, told me the exact opposite. Jack didn't have to play anybody. All he had to beat was five or six guys. Tiger had to beat all these great players. I'm like you. Got to be kidding me!
2: Do your research. Look at the
1: Hall of Famers, Nicholas. Look at the Hall of
2: Fame. I know what they're saying. The tour's deeper uh, when Tiger came along, but Tiger made the tour what it is now. Now we've got worldwide great golf, But, but but when he got there, it wasn't like that. And you can say what you want. Look at the Hall of Fame. Look who's in there. I mean, I'm sorry, but Freddie in the Hall of Fame? Come on. So so there's some guys that. I mean, Jack had to beat some unbelievable games. I mean, Lee Trevino has six majors. So show me who Tiger beat and how many majors they have, and you'll see. Besides Phil, it ain't much.
1: Also in your book, you talk about when you were young and you and your brothers would play, and you talk about the game of quarters, a game you guys played when you were out playing golf. Talk about what quarters is. Do you remember quarters? I, I don't, but I love the way you tell what quarters
2: is. Well, you know, that's why I talk about my book. My dad was a drunk, and we I mean, we always tried to avoid him because he'd come home mad from the golf course and drunk, and you just, you hid, you know, you hid from him. So I hated golf. But then my brother gave me his old set because my dad gave my brother his and said, you're coming to the range. I don't want to go to the range. I hate golf. I thought golf was where dads went to get drunk and then come back and wreck the house, you know. But my brother taught me to play. And uh, he pretty soon I'm playing golf and loving it because, you know, when you're the when you're from an alcoholic household to have to go outside and be able to control something and not be scared of it. It's amazing. And so anyway, he said, OK, we're going to play quarters. I said, what's quarter? OK, you get a quarter for long drive. You get a quarter up and down. You get a quarter for a par. Uh, you get a quarter for a putt longer than the flag stick, You get a quarter for a Sandy. I'm like, what's the sanding? He goes, well, you'll find out. And so then you, you keep track of your quarters. And if you get two pars in a row, that's 50 cents. Three pars is 75 cents. And so his only rule was you could not take the last, back then it was $2, from the guy's wallet. You had to leave him what we called cheeseburger money because you could get back then cheeseburger fries and a Coke for $2. And so no matter how much the other guy took off you he had to leave you two bucks and that was so fun playing quarters i remember we got so much to so go deeply into quarters once there was a fire there was a fire on the golf course i don't know it was a house i can't remember he says it was like a house and the and the fence and everything and we played <laughs> we played through the fire and we weren't gonna stop for nothing <laughs> what's the ruling when your ball is in the fire
1: Is that a drop? What do you get?
2: (laughs) No, no. Hey, you got to play out of the embers. We got the embers rule. There's no dropping. (laughs) 2009.
1: Then 62-year-old Uni Haskell, a nun in St. Petersburg, Florida, threw you over the edge, which made you go do something 694 times. Take us through what that was.
2: This nun had never played golf before, and she made a hole-in-one. And I think it was on her first day, maybe the third hole. And I'm like, well, God damn it. <laughs> I still don't have one. And I've been playing for, at that point, 40, uh, 30 years. So um, I rented a par three course. Uh, it was a par three course near my place, near my house in Denver, where uh, nobody's playing it because it was such a piece of crap. And the guy said, you don't have to rent it. just Just keep playing it. So I got my son out there with the first baseman's mitt, and I hit 10 shots off every tee box, going around and around and around till I made a hole-in-one. I finally made it on the second day at 1.43 p.m. on the 794th shot. My legs were screaming in pain, my back, and it was, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but it was 51 yards. And it went in the hole, and my son and I went crazy because it was finally over. And then we went to the uh, clubhouse to buy everybody drinks. And there was one guy who said, oh, I'll have a lemonade. I said, buy the <laughs> guy a lemonade. And then my buddy, uh, so the, there was some kind of pro in there. He comes in. I said, well, buy you a drink. I, How long was the hole in one? He says, I said, 51 yards. He goes, that's not regulation. That's not official. And I said, buddy, I'm hitting 10 balls on every <laughs> tee box to a kid with the first baseman's mitt, what part of official do you think I care about? <laughs> <laughs> so I finally got my hole in one, and then it was exactly like: Have you ever had a friend whose wife can't get pregnant, and they finally do in vitro, and then and then they uh, have a baby, and then she's pregnant every time after that, no problem? <laughs> I started getting all these holes in one, so I'm up to I'm a, well, I've got four now, but uh, I finally broke the seal on that. Jesus. <laughs>
1: To your point, I I read you made another hole-in-one at Hillcrest Country Club there in L.A. This time, Al Michaels is with you. Did
2: he give you the hole? Do you believe in miracles as the ball was rolling towards the hole? No, it was even better. I'm playing with Al Michaels. I hit it over over what was then their 16th hole, hit it right over the flag, but it's a little long, and it's on the fringe, but it's got spin. So Al, who is a great guy but a terrible golfer, just launches into play-by-play mode. It was just like a completely different guy. And he goes, hold on, folks. We're not done yet. As the ball starts spinning back, he goes, it could be. It might be. It is. <laughs> and it went in the hole. And I went crazy and pulled Brandy Chastain and ripped off my shirt and everything. But, but people say, it's too bad you didn't have it recorded. I mean, Al Michaels recording your, your hole-in-one. I'm like, are you kidding? It's in my memory forever. I'm going to be telling people on my deathbed about Al Michaels calling my hole in one.
1: That's awesome. Speaking earlier of L.A. Country Club, not far away, Bel Air Country Club, you're 63 years old. You go out and shoot 63. What's it like shooting your age at 63?
2: Well, a couple caveats. Uh, there was two holes under construction, a par five and a par four. So on the par five, I make an eagle roll in like a 30-foot putt, and I'm like, this is my day. And I just, the hole looked like, I mean, it was, it was giant. It looked like a kid's swimming pool. Like, I couldn't miss. I could have putted with my eyes closed. It was going in. So I make all these birdies, um, and on the 18th hole, uh, again, under construction, I knock it on the green, and I make a 25-footer for my ninth, uh, sorry, for my, yeah, ninth birdie of the day. I made a double bogey. So nine birdies, a double bogey, the rest par, and um, so that as a par seventy works out to sixty three. So I go in and tell the pro there, this great guy named Dave Potus, who who by the way is a, is a rules guy. He was there yesterday doing rules. <laughs> I said I just shot sixty three, and he goes, how many under? I said, uh, well seven under, par seventy, right? And he goes, no sir, didn't you see the sign on number one? I'm like what sign? Well. Uh, according to USGA rules uh, you have to take net par on the 1 and 18. Like what do you mean? I'm not taking net par. I made eagle and birdie. He goes no because the holes were under construction we would prefer you didn't play them but if you did you just had to take automatic net par. So you really shot 66 and that's when I took out my gun and shot him. (laughs) But so I had to write in a 66 in the in the website, you know, the Gin Handicap site, which I guess is fair because they were shorter. But uh, screw him. I tell people 63, it's 63, and I'm sticking with it.
1: I would, too, if I were you. <laughs> I saw your list of unforgettable holes, and I love the way you describe one of the par threes at Teeth of the Dog at Casa de Campo down there in uh, the Dominican Republic. You said it's the only golf hole with no land, 98% yeah. water. And you hit your, yeah. you go up there, you hit your tee shot to 15 feet. And you said the two kids who were selling used golf balls seem disappointed that you actually hit the green. Tell that story.
2: Yeah. They just, <laughs> they just sit there and dive in the ocean and get balls and then come back and sell them to the next group because it's an impossible hole. Somehow I hit the green, huh? <laughs> um, And so the only, they're selling for 50 cents and I probably, I probably should have bought a bunch, but I accidentally hit the hole. And you know what it reminds me of, Chris, there's so little land there. You know, I did five swimsuit issues. I wrote the story that nobody reads, but you get to go on the shoot. It kind of reminds me of how much material is in some of those swimsuits. That's how much land is on that part three. (laughs) It's like some of these swimsuits, I'm like, where's the suit? I mean, I'm not complaining, mind you. But, I mean, there can't be 53 cents of material in that swimsuit. And then she's not wearing it. She's carrying it. And it was awesome. But um, So that's kind of how that hole is.
1: Number 12 on your list is at Old Head. Of course, it's on my bucket list. I've been privileged to have their head of marketing, Brent Dornford, on the show several times. Talk about your experience playing Old Head.
2: Dude, I was there last week. Is that right? Yeah, I was at Old Head. I didn't see Brent. What's his name?
1: Brent Dornford.
2: Oh, I got to get to know Brent Dornford. Yes, but um, uh, people just won't believe this when I tell them. But the twelfth hole is this incredible narrow peninsula of land. It's a you you almost have to walk single file down the fairway. It's that narrow, and it's so narrow, and it's about three hundred feet up this peninsula. It's you know it's the it's the last spit of land that passengers on the Titanic saw before they eventually sank. It is the 50 or 10 miles from where the Lusitania sank that saw, started World War I. But anyway, birds go through caves off one side and come out the other. You can kayak easily from one side of that peninsula to the other. You've got to go down the middle of this peninsula. It's sheer death off each side. It's the most beautiful hole I've ever seen. I think it's even more pretty than eight on Pebble Beach, which is my favorite hole otherwise. It's a par five and you got, it's just breathtaking. And on a beautiful day, you don't want to leave. You want to have a picnic. And um, so you play and it's a par five. And then you, you know, you walk about 200 yards to the next tee box because there's only room for one hole. And uh, so I just love that course. I love everything about Ireland and uh, especially the people. And the, the caddies will just give you so much crap. They don't care about their tip. <laughs> it's amazing it reminds me of the I love Scottish and Irish caddies because they, they'll just rather get you they'd rather get a joke off than worry about their tip and I remember one time we were playing St. Andrews and this guy we called Frankie the Pitbull, three putt he hated the three putt and he had a hot temper and he three putted for the fifth time I think it was on 11 because the greens are so huge he three putts 11 and he's like Oh, God damn, I hate to three putt. Jesus, I hate to three putt. I, I, we don't know what he's going to do. He'll probably throw his putter or something. And so he finally goes, you know what? You know what? I'd rather go back to my hotel and find my wife with another guy than three putt another stupid green at this stupid course. <laughs> <laughs> there was this awkward pause, and one of the caddies goes, what's your room number? <laughs>
1: That's awesome. Rick, you lived in Italy when COVID hit, and we all remember the videos of the people in Italy stuck in their homes and out there singing on their balconies at night and all of those sorts. What was it like for you to be in Italy when COVID first hit?
2: Well, it was just terrible. I mean, you, you, had, to have a, you had to have a note from your doctor that you could you know go see him. You were allowed, they'd stop you on the street saying, where are you going? You could go to the grocery store or the pharmacy and that's about or the doctor. That's about it. And it was no joke. You know, what happened there is because Wuhan is where it started and Wuhan is sort of the fashion place of China. They steal all the big with fashion designers and Milan, they design a bunch of stuff. So all that, there's this link between Wuhan and Florence. So Florence got hit so hard and really early. And I mean, we had some friends that were just, you know, lost their businesses. It was really sad. So for me, uh, you know, my main reason for living in Italy is to ride at the sidewalk cafes and drink coffee and then in the afternoon drink Campari spritzes and, and then stop riding and just watch people go by especially people in dresses. But anyway, (laughs) that was so no longer possible. And so I came back to America where it was so much better. People were all complaining here. I'm like, try Italy, man. You are locked down and and your life is not your own there.
1: Rick, just a couple more before I let you go. And your book about Donald Trump, Commander-in-Cheat, what was it like playing golf with him? And talk about what the Trump bump is.
2: <laughs> well, so I wrote this book called Who's Your Caddy, in which I caddied for 12 people, and one of them was Trump. Except when I got there, whoever he was going to play with backed out. So he said, you're not cadding, you're playing. I'm like, okay, whatever, I'll play. He took seven mulligans. We played a $10 <laughs> stroke bet. Just $10, who could shoot the lowest? And because I looked at his swing, he looked like about a 12, and at the time I was about an 8. I'm like, I can do this. Well, I didn't know he was going to take seven mulligans. He took a gimme chip in. I've never seen that before. I hit it up close. I hit it up close for a birdie on a par five. And he said, that's good. And then he goes, I guess that makes this good. And he, he picked up a chip. I said, did you just, and he, you, he's always in this super fast cart because he takes the governor off and he's got his caddy and they're, they're off. And I'm trying to say, you can't pick up a chip because he's not a good chipper at all. He's a pretty good putter, but he can't chip at all. And he and what are you gonna do? It's his course. He buys the cheeseburgers afterwards, and you're stuck with him. But the the thing about sitting around with him afterwards, he goes, <laughs> he goes, you know how many club championships I'm won? I've won, and I'm like, what flight? And he goes, no, <laughs> the real club championship. And I go, none. And he goes, twelve. I'm like, no way, zero. I'm saying I've got over under zero. He goes, no, what I do is. Every time I buy a golf course or open one, I play the first round by myself, and I call that the club championship. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't do that. He goes, stop me. And I said, okay, fine. That's kind of that's kind of diabolically clever. So, goes, so then, I'm in Italy, and he starts going for that election, 2016. I'm a champion. I'm a champion. I beat the best guys, the young guys. That's no strokes. By then, he'd won 18 club championships, he said. (laughs) And I said, wait a minute. You already told me how you do this. You can't suddenly tell people you're a champion. But he kept doing it. So I said, this is a column for SI. I started looking at other championships he'd won. I found one where he was in New Jersey, and they were playing the Trump Philadelphia club championship. And he called in and said, I shot 70. Or he said, what won today in, in New Jersey? And they said, uh what won in Philadelphia. I'm in mean New Jersey, and he said 75, and he goes, "My well, shot 72 here, so I'm the champ." <laughs> so he he took the guy's name off the wall, and he became the champ. And it just kept getting worse and worse. He won one when he was in North Korea, while he was president. He wanted his this Trump course in Florida, and they played it a month before, and this movie guy won it, and he came and saw him and said, "You're not the champ because you didn't play me." And uh, I'll play you nine holes right now. And so they played nine holes. And the guy says, Trump cheated like a mafia accountant. <laughs> and uh, and he beat me. And so now he's the club champ. He was in North Korea at the time. So anytime you hear, I'm a champion from him, uh, don't believe it.
1: <laughs> Speaking of who is your caddy, it's one of my favorite books. And my favorite part of the book is when You caddied for Tommy Aaron during the practice round at the masters. And he told you to keep your mouth off his ball. Talk about your experience of of caddying for Tommy.
2: Well, you know, I was surprised to get his bag for the masters. You know, I think he was the 1972 champion, maybe, uh, kind of a surprising champion. And the re and I asked him, can I be his caddy? He said, sure, but I'm not going to pay you because you're going to get a story out of it. And I, okay, fine. I don't want to be paid. And, uh, I found out how I got the bag is he's like three of the grouchiest people rolled into one that you've ever met. And he was always mad. And people would go Tommy. And he would be like, I don't come down to his office and yell, go Fred at him. Why is he yelling at me? (laughs) Like, well, Mr. Aaron, maybe he just wants you to do well. But anyway, um, we get to the fifth hole and we're already two over on the first day. And, um, he hits this five iron back there and it's not going to be enough. And I'm like, get up, get up. And he turns to me and says, keep your mouth off my ball. And I had never heard that before. And I said, no, I, I use this wet towel on your ball. And he goes, no, don't talk to my ball. Keep your mouth off it. Don't say a word to my ball. And I, I wanted to say, well, we're about to go three over. Maybe somebody should have a chat with your ball, but, but that made it difficult. Cause that was like my first bag. and then. The rest of the book, I had the first question I had to ask, no matter who it was, how do you feel about mouths on your ball? <laughs> and people said, oh, I don't like it. And so that's what it was. Wow. <laughs> oh, Rick, by the way, quick, quick Tommy Aaron story. So, you know, uh, he's kind of cheap and um, he's not much fun. And then afterwards, you know, he misses the cut. We missed the cut by 11 or something. And he says, go get a big box out by the dumpster. I'm like, what do you mean? Cardboard box. So I go get a large size cardboard box and bring it up to the champion's room at Augusta. We're talking about the most sacrosanct place in the world of golf. Only champions and their caddies can go in there. So I go in there and he says, okay, set it up. And then he starts loading it with free shit. Notepads, pens, pencils, coasters, uh, (laughs) tees, markers. He filled it with free crap. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I guess that's uh I guess that's how he made his money. I don't know, but I guess he I don't <laughs> oh, know if he sells it when he gets home or gives it away or what, but uh, he I was, filled that box full of free crap.
1: I was hoping he was giving that to you, not taking it home with him.
2: Oh, please. I would have loved it. But no, I had to carry it to his car and put it in his trunk.
1: <laughs> wow. Rick, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing. Get copies of your books and then follow you online and on social media.
2: Uh, at Twitter, at Riley Rick. I'm on Facebook. Um, we have a lot of fun on there. In fact, for this week, uh, if you if you'd have tw- if you tweeted me or or Facebooked me a, a true great golf story, I was going to send you a free book. And I think I've I think we had almost 100, really good ones, And um, so I gave out 100 books this week. The book is called So Help Me Golf, coming to a movie theater near you, maybe, maybe not. But uh, (laughs) other than that, I don't have any podcasts. I got nothing, just uh, Twitter. Oh, I write for the Washington Post sometimes, and I write movies, movies and books out here in uh, L.A. now.
1: Well, Rick, it has been a huge thrill to get to spend some time with you. I hope I get the privilege of doing it again sometime. You're, you're a two, uh, true treat and a, and one of my uh, favorite authors and heroes. And I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day to spend a little bit with me.
2: Well, oh, I never get to go on with a two-time gold medal winner. <laughs> I'm sure that's not man. true,
1: but, but I appreciate you saying that.
2: <laughs> hey, thank
1: you. Take care, Rick. All the best in your family. We'll catch up soon.
2: Thanks, Chris.
1: See you, Rick. That is the great Rick Riley again. Online at Riley Road on Instagram at Riley Rick on Twitter, and his website, which is fantastic, is RickRileyOnline.com. You're gonna to get to see all of the books that he has. Fantastic stuff. He's absolutely one of the great writers of our time. So much fun to read all of his great stories. Go make you laugh out loud, just like he did a moment ago. He's just a, an unbelievably good writer and a fantastic interview, obviously. I'm so glad I got to spend a little bit of time with him. He's one of my heroes, and uh, I hope we're privileged enough to have him back on the show maybe a little bit later on this summer or in the fall. I'll be sure to follow up with him. I hope you'll be sure to follow him, like I say, all over social media and online. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this very special episode of Next on the Tea. Please check out our website, t.net to stay up to date with what our guest schedule looks like, plus we give you links back to listen to, whether it's full episodes or your favorite individual segments, you'll find them on there, plus we're all over the place wherever you get your podcasting content. We're going to be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, we're on Audioboom, Player.fm, we're on Podbean, so whatever your favorite podcast site is, we're probably on that one too, particularly Shout out to our good friends over on GoodPods. Download their app and listen to this show available free on there. They've been so good to me in this show, featuring us several times, and we're right there under their golf podcast inside their top 15. So they've become great friends, and I'm very proud to be a part of what they're doing. I hope you'll download the app and check it out as well. Until next time, my friends, hit them straight.